You are listening to Historically, a show where we decolonize history and debunk myths and misinformation taught to you in school and on corporate media. I'm your host, Esha. Today, we have a very special guest, someone who I awaited nearly two years to interview for this book, Africa's Last Colonial Currency, the CFA Frank Story. We have author Diongo Samba Sila. So... I was reading your book, um, Africa's Last Colonial Currency, the CFA Frank Story, which I'm very familiar with because for me as an Indian, colonialism rules our world and we have to kind of understand how colonizers kind of take away monetary sovereignty. But before we begin with that, there's one sentence, like the first paragraph, that I'm going to read from your uh, book, and I want you to talk a little bit about it and what you mean by this. The underlying neoliberal ideology that has created these urban regional divides in our advanced nations in recent decades is in fact an advanced expression of the earlier extractive mechanisms that the wealthy have used for centuries to further their ambitions through invasion and occupation, colonialism. Yeah, in fact, this is um, a section from the uh, brilliant uh, preface done by Professor William Mitchell, Bill Mitchell, who is the founder of modern monetary theory. And I think what he wrote in his preface is really right, because uh, what we are currently witnessing, I mean, uh, during the last four decades, it's for, for, for us, for him, and also for me and my co-author, Fanny Pigeot, a kind of uh, deployment of the neo neoliberal logic, the colonial logic, in a context where you no longer have colonies. That means that you have um, regional divides, you have uh, more and more class divides, and also you have uh, divides along agenda and class lines too. So all of these divides have been exacerbated by neo neoliberalism, and uh, to some extent, you could say that neoliberalism is another iteration of the colonial logic, at least economically speaking. Uh, okay. Um, it's funny because a few years ago, I was working with this congressional candidate, Richard Ojeda. He actually ran for president too. And he actually mentioned how in the U.S. he considers West Virginia a colony within a nation. And when I look at all the statistics, how there's life expectancy went down, there, there's so much that I, it's hard for me to say that he's wrong. So do you think that there are these colonies within a nation in many of these advanced imperialistic countries in the world? Well, there are some people, some authors who talk about internal colonialism, even within uh, developed countries. It depends how you want to use the word colonialism and the concept of colony you have. For me, it's always Lenin's definition from imperialism, the highest stage. Is there like a, or I, the second definition or the more advanced comes from the dependency theory advanced by Samir Amin? Do you agree or do you think that we need to add something else to both of these um, definitions? Well, I, I'm, I mean, in, uh, even in, within advanced countries, you have sometimes huge regional divides. Could you expand that in terms of colonialism? I mean, it depends because normally in the capitalist system, normally you have uh, unbalanced growth. You have, I mean, uh, regional, I mean, disparities 
that is itself in the process of capitalist accumulation. That means capitalist accumulation could never be even geographically speaking. So to some extent, I would say it's normal, not in a moral sense, but in an I mean, statistical sense, that it is normal that you have a regional divides even within developed nations. Uh, but the thing is, those regional divides could somehow be uh, made I mean, less shocking or at least could somehow be tackled by government standing, for example, and government government action. But it happens often that those regions, shall, I mean, underdeveloped, within developed nations, sometimes they do not have, I mean, the political power, or sometimes they are they have a kind of, I mean, uh, racial homogeneity, etc. So you have all those uh, logics uh, playing, even within core countries. That makes no sense. So now let's go to your book. I've literally highlighted every single paragraph with something important. So I let's start with, um, have you listened to what, um, I forgot his name, but he said that France, without Africa, France is that he was the president. Uh, yeah, President Mitterrand. He said that in 1957. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Thank yeah. you. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What, what did he say? Well, uh, he wrote that in a book saying that without Africa, uh, France would have no history in the 21st century. And this has been something like a dirty secret for the French diplomats and the successive French governments since then. Uh, that means that they could not, I mean, the French government officials, they could not imagine French future uh, without some form of subjection vis-a-vis the African continent, especially the Francophone part, you see. And this is generally also a part of this vision called Year Africa. Uh, this vision has been developed after the First World War, and uh, it means that, well, you could not separate the fates of both Europe and Africa. Uh, European future depends on Africa. African future depends also on Europe to the extent that, well, Europe should always take the lead. Indeed. Um, and that is a paradigm that the world is tired of and wants to see a new one. So they talk about how after World War II, all these former French colonies got so-called independence. But then um, in your book, you write that precisely since 1945, when the CFA Franc was created, it doesn't bind France only to Ivory Coast, but to a total of 14 countries grouped into two monetary zones. The West African Economic Monetary Union, YMU, also known by its French name as Union Économique et Monétaire à l'Ouest Africain, comprising Benin, Burkina Faso, Ivory Coast, Guinea-Bissau, Mali, Niger, Senegal, Togo, and its Central African Economic and Monetary Communic- Unit, CIMAC. So can you talk about what these are and what is the difference between YMU and CIMAC, if there is any? Yeah, thanks for this question. As you said, the CFA Frank was born in 1945, I mean, in the aftermath of the World War II. Uh, what happened that led to the, uh, to the creation of the CFA Frank? 
In fact, uh, at that time, there was something called monetary unity. And it meant uh, you have one currency for a whole empire. So you have one currency, the French franc, the franc uh, for the whole French empire. Obviously, you would have a different banknotes depending on the context, etc. But basically, it was a French, French currency. Excuse me, may I just, uh, if I cough, ignore my, like, do what exactly you did, ignore my cough, and it can be removed post-processing, but continue. (laughs) And so uh, you have this this, uh, this principal one currency for a whole empire. So the the franc for the whole French empire. And uh, you would have different banknotes depending on the context. But the thing is, you had the French currency circulating in the, in the French empire. And after the Second World War, the French economy was really devastated. And the, the, the franc has to be devalued against, I mean, gold, against the pound, the uh, US dollar, etc. And so the question that arose uh, in that context was, should we have a uniform rate of devaluation across the empire? Or should we rather have, I mean, of course not. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> different rates of devaluation because the colonies suffered less from World War II compared to the metropole. May I mention one thing is that France's entire military was working for Vichy France or Germany, and it was mostly the colonies that liberated France. <laughs> yeah, that, that was also part part of the story. I mean, the colonies, most of them, at least those called the Tirailleurs Senegalais, which were they were not only Senegalese, but they were called like that. They fought for the liberation of France, and that's why uh, Thomas Sankara would say, "Who liberated Europe?" He said, "It's France. It's it's the Africans who liberated Europe from the Nazis." You know, <laughs> well, that's not the whole story, but yeah, at least there was some contribution from Africans, and sometimes much more contribution than from the. French, in my opinion. That's another story. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's another story. But th- that was the context. And the CFA franc was born out of the devaluation of, of, the, um, of the French franc. Uh, so uh, when the CFA franc was born, it had a higher external value compared to the French franc. So that meant that, well, in, in fact, the French gave, a, I mean, a kind of... A, a poisoned gift to the to the to the African colonies, because when you have a, an overvalued currency, well, that makes your uh, exportation uh, non-competitive, and uh, generally you have, uh, I mean, high prices domestically, and uh, the economy uh, tends to be uh, oriented towards importation rather than domestic production. So that's the poisoned gift. Uh, well, uh, associated with the birth of the CFA franc. And uh, this was not done by accident, but this was a way uh, of helping France uh, reconquer the trade shares it lost within, with, uh, the, uh, with its colonies during the, in the, during, the, during the war. But it was also a way of, uh, well, for the French economy to have access in French franc to the raw materials of its colonies in a context where the French economy was weak to compete internationally and to have access, I mean, to raw mat- the critical raw materials needed for its re- reconstruction because in the international trade system, you need 
basically US dollar to buy uh, most of the things. But if you have a CFA franc system, you don't need to have US dollar. You could pay uh, all uh, the uh, raw materials you need, all your imports in French franc. So the CFA franc was born in, in that context to help the reconstruction of the devastated uh, French economy. And it survived like that more or less until the independence period, the 1960s. And, uh, well, at that period, the French uh, government, the French elites knew that uh, decolonization was inevitable because it happened in Asia and it was also happening in parts of the African continent. And so they had this deal. They said to our leaders at that time, and most of our leaders were trained in France, and there were politicians even in the French, I mean, in the French system. You know, uh, some of them occupied even positions of um, parliamentarians uh, uh, in France, you see. So you had this kind of close integration between French elites and the African elites they, 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 they trained. And so the French said to those African elites they trained, well, we are going to give you independence, but, you know, uh, you won't be sovereign in any domain that is important. You know, for example, uh, you are not going to be sovereign in terms of currency, in foreign trade, uh, military bases, higher education, civil aviation, all of these things. Uh, you won't be sovereign because the decisions will be taken by, by Paris. And if you accept that, we give you independence. And so that is the pattern of independence that um, most uh, uh, Francophone countries south of the Tara obtained. That means an independence without the attributes of sovereignty. Uh, that's what, what explained that while most of the Af other African countries uh, started to issue their own currency, uh, when they got their independence, this was not the case with most of the, I mean, former French colonies, because they signed those uh, agreements called the uh, yeah, cooperation agreements to say that, well, we want to, well, to be independent, but without being sovereign. And yeah, there, there was there was only one 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 leader who 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 refused that Guinea. Yeah. Did you read my article about that? I will quote from that article if I may. Oh, that's nice. I didn't read, but I would like to read it. Yeah. I just sent it to you. Um. Okay. okay. So then, um, in Guinea, Charles de Gaulle began what he called campaigning, but the more appropriate word would be intimidating. In the capital, in the Great Hall, that was filled with Guineans, he spoke first and included a very non-veiled threat. We, we spoke of independence. I say here even more than everywhere else that autonomy is at the disposable of Guinea. And she can take it on September 28th by saying no to the proposal that is made to her. In this case, I guarantee that the metropolis will not obstruct it. It will, of course, have consequences, but obstacles will not make it and your territory will be able as it wishes in the conditions it follows and it wants to root. But then Secretore comes in with his speech and he says, there is no dignity without freedom. We prefer freedom in poverty to opulence in slavery. The crowds erupted in cheers. A few days later, Guineans bravely went to the voting vote and 90, 95% of them voted them to be free. Then the next section, I say, liberty, egality, fraternity, blancs, seulement. And then, um, so... As soon as the results claim came out, Charles de Gaulle ordered vengeance. A CIA bulletin that came from, uh, from that time claims that Paris wanted to set an example to other nations that sought independence. In a reaction and as a warning to other French-speaking territories, the French pulled out of Guinea over a two-month period, taking everything they could. 
they unscrewed light bulbs, removed plants for sewage pipelines in Kanakri, the capital, and they even burnt medicines as opposed to leaving them in uh, for the Guineans. And then, as I said, um, a few days later, other African colonies would go to the ballot booth, but of course they voted yes because the price of freedom was too high. Yeah, that was the story of uh, how Guinea wanted to break Uh, I mean, from this pattern of uh, neocolonialism, I mean, at the onset of the African independences. And uh, Sekouture was, uh, well, he had a different profile compared to the, the other, I mean, uh, leaders trained in France because Sekouture was a trade unionist and uh, he knew how to organize people. Because mm. one thing that often people often do not realize is that, well, in the French system, well, uh, electoral frauds, you know, uh, uh, frauds during referenda, etc., uh, well, they are rather common, you know, so it's really tough to win a referendum. And uh, Secretary did that because he was able to mobilize his own people to do what it ta- to, to, to do uh, whatever it uh, took to win the, the referendum. So, yeah, but they had to, to, to pay dearly Uh, because, well... Uh, they didn't have medicine or light bulbs. I mean, that's very uh, disturbing. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Because, you know, every every time there had been... Um, well, the, Fr- the, French, the French government has allied with some African governments like Senegal, Cote d'Ivoire, to send, I mean, a lesson to other countries uh, that wanted to, well, to have much more freedom to choose their economic partners, etc., and to chart their own path to, 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 to development. And yeah, that, that has been the, the, the story from, I mean, the 1960 to, to, to now. Okay, so um, in page 19, you mentioned the CFA system, and you talk about the four fundamental principles. What are they, and what is their purpose? Yeah. In fact, if, if, if uh, Michael and I, Fanny Pijo and I say that, well, this is a colonial currency, people will say that probably you are joking or you are exaggerating or you are not being serious because uh, colonialism is something of the past. But no, we are not joking. We uh, label it as a colonial currency because the CFA is still a colonial currency. Why? Because you have to take a look at the organizing principles of this currency system. And the organizing principles, they have not been altered despite the so-called independence, you see. And uh, what has been altered to some extent is the management of this colonial system. But the system itself remains colonial. Why? Because you have basically, I mean, four pillars. And these four pillars, they have been there since the beginning. The first one is the fixed back to the French currency. That means that the CFA franc external value is determined value of the French franc, you know, so they have a, a fixed relationship, you see. It was before the French franc, and since 1999, it's a fixed back to the euro. And the, the second principle is the uh, free uh, transfer principle. That means that, I mean, French companies, I mean, French investors, they could repatriate freely their capital and their income, freely with no exchange rate risk and no transfer risk. When we say exchange rate risk, we mean that, well, the value of the CFA franc uh, in terms of uh, the French franc or the euro will still remain the same. 
Can we just work through a quick example? Suppose, um, let's just say that 10 CFA francs is worth one French franc. How would the fixing work? Is that regardless of what the inflation rate is in France, it will still be stuck to the same system? Yeah, yeah. In fact, it's a decision made by political authorities to say that we want a fixed relationship between the CFA franc and the French franc or the French or, or the euro, you know. So they decide that uh, currently, if you have one euro, it gives you uh, uh, 656 uh, CFA franc. And normally, uh, if you have 656 a CFA franc, you should be able to convert it at this fixed rate, you know, that will not change. And since 1999, that, that hasn't changed because this is a decision by a political authority. That means the exchange rate, uh, well, uh, exchange rate value is not uh, determined by, I mean, I mean uh, fluctuations uh, regarding the economy or other parameters of the economy, you see. So that's a political decision. And uh, for them, it was important to have this kind of environment of what they called monetary stability. That means that, well, there will not be daily fluctuations between, for example, the value of the CFA franc vis-a-vis the, the, the French currency, etc. So they wanted to have that. Uh, so when we talk now about um, the transfer risk, it means that the central bank will always have enough foreign exchange reserves, I mean, enough inter- international Enough CFA francs? So the Central Bank of France will have enough CFA francs? No, the Central Bank of the CFA franc zone. I mean, in the, in the CFA franc, we, you have two blocks. You have the West African block uh, called the YMU, as you said earlier, West African Economic Monetary Union. And you have the Central African block called the CMAC, you know. And all the, the two blocks, they have the same currency called the CFA. But in fact... It's two different currencies bearing the name CFA. Uh, for West Africa, it's called the front of the financial community. For Central Africa, it's called the front of the uh, financial cooperation, you know. But before, at the beginning, the CFA franc was called the front of the French colonies in Africa. And after that, front of the French community in Africa. But they, maintain, they, they managed to maintain the acronym FCFA, and every time they uh, change in, uh, the, the, the denomination, you see. Uh, so you have these two blocks, and each block uh, has its own central bank, its own bank notes, and so on. But the two blocks, they obey to the same uh, organizing principles, the four pillars. So the first pillar, as I said, was the fixed pack to the French currency. The second pillar uh, is the free transfer policy. That means that investor companies could freely repatriate their capital and income. The third pillar is what is called the guarantee of convertibility. It seems, uh, I mean, intimidating as a concept, but it's really simple to, to understand. It means that the French treasury is willing to lend money to the central bank. Uh, to the two central banks in the CFA's front zone whenever they are short of, I mean, of foreign currency. For example, if the central bank of West Africa doesn't have enough euros, well, they could lend the money, they could uh, um, uh, borrow the money from the French treasury. That's the meaning of this concept of guarantee of convertibility. So that means that whenever you want a loan from the French treasury, the French treasury is ready to give you the loan in its own currency, not in US dollar, but in French currency. And uh, this third pillar has a counterpart. 
two counterparts, in fact. Uh, the first counterpart is that, well, the central banks, both of them, they are obliged to deposit uh, with the French Treasury 50% of their foreign exchange reserves. Oh, my. Uh, oh, my God. That means, oh, my God. Okay, so that means, like, usually you need hard currency in order to buy things like medicine and tractors and wheels. And so this just means that France takes out 50% of the hard currency from Africa before anyone sees it? Yeah, the, the, the foreign exchange, the foreign exchange reserves. That means, for example, let's, let's suppose that, well, you have an exporter of cocoa in base mm-hmm. in Cote d'Ivoire. Cote d'Ivoire is producing cocoa. Well, cocoa is priced in pound and I mean also, also in, in US dollar. Let's suppose that, well, uh, this cocoa exporter sells a value of 1 million US dollar to a, mm-hmm. to a US importer. So what will happen is that, well, the cocoa uh, exporter in Cote d'Ivoire will receive the 1 million US dollar, not in US dollar, but in CFA franc. That means ah. that it will be converted, you know. But half of the 1 million US dollar will be transferred to the French treasury because that's how it works, you see. That's outrageous like i don't know what to say besides that's extremely outrageous wow yeah so that means also that well the french could buy whatever they want the french economy could buy whatever they want in the cfa franc zone by credit because that's the purpose Ah. of the system yeah (laughs) that's the purpose of the system that means that you could have access to all the goods produced in the countries using the cfa franc I mean, on, on a credit basis. And uh, yeah, that, that's the purpose of the system. Wow. And then, uh, then on page 31, you call it, you and your co-author call it a virtuous cycle. Can you talk about what you mean by a virtual cycle? Well, in fact, uh, for us, it's a very vicious circle. But those who defend... <laughs> Did I misread this? I'm so sorry. Did I, no, you call it a virtuous cycle as a joke. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because those, 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 those who defend the CFA franc system, they say that, well, this is a good system. Why? Because you have a monetary stability. And by monetary stability, they mean two things. Uh, first, you have this fixed back to the euro. And yeah, so that means your currency is not fluctuating too much compared to most global South currencies, which generally depreciates. You know, the second thing is that you have a lower rate of inflation in the CFA franc zone. That's true. I mean, if you take the, the case of my country, Senegal, between 1996 and 2019, we had outperformed the U.S. in terms of inflation rate. You know, <laughs> that is crazy for a developing country. That means that, yeah, there is no financing for the economy. You know, <laughs> that means you are asphyx- asphyxiating the economy. But that, that is a trust. And they say that if you have monetary stability, well, you will attract investment. And especially you will attract foreign investors because foreign investors will say, well, their currency uh, are not depreciating and they have lower inflation. So this is an ideal environment. So we'll invest. But the thing is, well, investors use many other parameters uh, beyond that. And I think they do not often care about the exchange rate, uh, if you have a peg or not, or if you have inflation or not. But they are trying to factor in many other parameters. And if you look, for example, at the stock of foreign direct investment, when we talk about stock of foreign direct investment, uh, we mean the, the cumulated net flows over, let's say, decades of foreign direct investment. 
until 2019, Ghana, uh, which is a well, uh, Af West African country formerly colonized by Britain, you know, uh, they have their own national currency. It's a floating currency, so it's not pegged to any other currency. And you see, they uh, recorded a stock of foreign investment uh, that was higher than the uh, combined uh, stock of foreign investment of the eight West African countries using the CFA franc. You see, ah. so that. Yeah, I'm just curious. What's the population difference, if you may, um, if you may uh, tell me, between Ghana and some of the other countries? Well, uh, I mean, in the West African CFA franc, you should have something like 110 million people, more or less. Yeah, that's about. And, yeah, that's a lot. For, for, for Ghana, it's 30 million. I mean, around. Wow. 30 okay. Million. Yeah. That's a lot. That's uh, so. When Walter Rodney talks about how Africa was underdeveloped, this seems like one of the premier examples that we could use. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We could say that. I mean, the CFA franc for us, uh, for Fanny Pichot and me, is really a receipt for underdevelopment. It's colonial, but it's also uh, an instrument for impoverishing African countries. And you could see that using, I mean, standard economic indicators. Uh, you know, uh, when countries develop, sometimes you see, generally you see that, well, they record uh, higher rates of economic growth per capita, you know, real economic growth per capita. There are many people criticizing GDP, etc. I know those criticisms, but at least sometimes it could give you some important information about the uh, level of development of given countries. And if you take the case of the CFA franc countries, I mean, the richest among them is Cote d'Ivoire. It's the richest. I mean, Cote d'Ivoire has the highest GDP among the 14 countries using the CFA franc. But when you look at the real GDP per capita of Cote d'Ivoire, uh, you see that, well, in 2016, for example, uh, Cote d'Ivoire had a real GDP per capita lower than its best level of real GDP per capita it recorded in 1978. That means at this, I mean, in 2022, uh, Cote d'Ivoire hasn't still uh, caught up with its best level of real GDP per capita it achieved in 1978. And you could see the same pattern for most of the countries using the CFA franc. For example, Gabon, for example, um, Cameroon, uh, Niger, all those countries. So that means that when you look at their performance over the long run, you see that it has been either economic decline or stagnation for most African countries using the, the CFA franc. So, yeah, whatever indicator you take, you will see that the CFA franc countries are lagging behind all indicators except, for example, inflation. But yeah, they have low inflation because there are no financing in the, in, in the economy at all. And um, one thing you mentioned in your book that really surprised me is that there is also a military agreement in relation to the CFA franc. And it, it to me, it was hard. Could you talk about the, I guess, connection, how it works? Because it seems very uh, unexpected to somebody like me. Yeah. In fact, you could say that it's a kind of a package. You know, mm -hmm. there was this independence package. Uh, some people could call it the, I mean, the colonial pact. Initially, the colonial pact did not mean that. The colonial pact meant the international division of labor between the metropole and the colonies. But some people use it to say, well, the deal between 
the, the neocolonial deal between the metropole and its like, former colonies. And for the case of CFA foreign countries, there was this package saying that, well, you will have independence, but no sovereignty. The military will be decided by France, you know, the education system, how you manage your mineral resources, you know, your educational system, all, all those things. I mean, African leaders, well, French in France, royal to French interests, they signed agreements accepting that. And you see that uh, France has been historically one of the most interventionist I mean, country within Africa. I mean, Cuba was interventionist Cuba, but Cuba uh, worked with uh, national liberation movements for African countries to obtain uh, their deserved right to emancipation, to political emancipation. But that was not the case with France because France intervened militarily, I mean, to overthrow progressive governments and to install, I mean, uh, neocolonial governments that would uh, act uh, for the benefit of France and Western interests, you see. I, I think it's the most well-known example in the West would, in, would probably be Thomas Sankara from Burkina Faso and the overthrow with Blaise Kampaira. Yeah, yeah, Thomas, Thomas Sankara is a, is, a, is, a, is a good example because, you know, I would say Thomas Sankara was closing the pages of the, uh, the so-called Fathers of Independence. Thomas Saka was not a father of independence, but this era of charismatic African leaders, progressive ones, you know, uh, committed to their people, etc. Thomas Saka for me closed that page, but it closed it in a very brutal way in the sense that while the French knew that this young man, he's really a revolutionary man and he was loved by the, I mean, at least in the francophone uh, sphere, he was loved by the by, by the youth. And uh, if the Sankara example, I mean, worked, I mean, this could have created, I mean, a profound change in francophone Africa. And uh, Thomas Sankara could not live long, I mean, because, I mean, he was dis- disturbing everything and he was developing ideas that could not be accepted, absorbed. By, by, by French imperialism. And that's why they, um, they were complicit in his assassination. And when he was assassinated with the complicity of uh, Blaise Compaoré, Blaise Compaoré would stay in power from 1987 to 2014. And uh, Blaise Compaoré, when he was in power, I mean, he killed like, killed like something like 100 people and many people were exiled in neighboring countries, etc. And all of that was, uh, I mean, the help, the strong help of the French government. And when in 2014, there was this social movement to bless Compare because he wanted to change the constitution to have a certain or at least have the option of having his brother as his successor, people went out to say, well, we don't want this. Yeah, so Bless has to go out, you know. And, uh, yeah, he was exfiltrated by, by the French, you know. And he was, uh, I mean, he resulted to Cote d'Ivoire, which is also another neo-colonial country, loyal to French interests. And what happened was that two weeks after, Cote d'Ivoire gave nationality to Blaise Compaoré in a way to uh, give him some immunity against, I mean, the Burkina Bay judicial, you know. Recently, past months, etc., there had been a trial about this Sankara case, and yeah, they condemned they condemned Blaise uh, uh, Compaoré. But there was recently a coup d'état by um, by uh, a military coup d'état, 
And those who perpetrated the coup d'etat wanted to create a kind of, I mean, reconciliation that would absolve Blaise Compaoré of his crime, you know. <laughs> but yeah, there had been another coup d'etat, military coup d'etat, because those people were not happy with the, <laughs> I mean, the former military regime, which was somehow loyal to, to, to French interest. So you could see that currently you have this interventionist game by France because the young people want to escape neocolonialism, French neocolonialism. And I mean, it's a very uh, deep trend uh, across uh, Francophone Africa, uh, but the French are doing their best to support, I mean, uh, leaders who could try to maintain this order, which has become very anachronistic. Still looking for a stable currency and a fixed exchange rate? How about $5 a month on Substack to decolonize history? Go to historically.substack.com and subscribe to get more great interviews and articles. Also, check out our YouTube channel for Late Nights with Lenin, sitting down and reading the absolute greatest of all time when it comes to trolling your way to revolution. It is what is to be done. Do you have statistics on how many interventions France has had in Africa between 1945 and now? Well, it's, 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 it's difficult to say. But if you take out the names of the, the, the up military operations, you could count something like more than one, one, 100. Yes. And uh, there is, there is a, a researcher, Charbonneau, who made that calculation between, I think, something like 1945 to the early 2000s. Wow, over 100. And so that is, can you explain how the logistics of these interventions work? Like, so there are, I, I take it there are some French bases close by with Africa? Well, they have an, a number of uh, military bases uh, in, in, in Francophone Africa. And uh, these military bases, they have been part of the independence so-called agreements, you know. And uh, the French has always been their policy to have a, uh, military basis for their to assess their, their their political yeah and economic influence but with economic crisis and also the economic decline of france they the trend has been to reduce the number of military people uh, present in africa but still you have strong military presence because well for them it's uh, i mean it's like what Mitterrand said to defend the future of french they have to be present militarily speaking. And you know that when you have a trend towards militarization, generally it follows a trend of economic decline because the countries that are generally hegemonic, they maintain their hegemony through, through trade, through other cultural things, you know, but not necessarily through the military. And uh, with, I mean, the strong impact, economic impact China and other countries are having in Africa, so the, I would say the natural response is the military one, because if you could not compete uh, in trade, industrial terms, financial terms with China, the only way you could defend your advantages or, I mean, your influence is through diplomatic and military means. That's why you could see this military trend from the French, from the European Union, and also from the U.S. Uh, so... If, uh, like the one country I noticed in the last year or two has had a lot of military destabilization is Mali. Are you familiar with what happened? If so, would you be able to quickly talk a little bit about the about that trend? 
Well, I could not say that I, I know all the ins and outs of Mali, but Mali is a neighboring country of my country, Senegal, and we have a long shared story. So uh, for me, the, Malian, the current Malian predicament, well, could be explained to some extent as the result of the imperialist aggression of, of Libya. Because, you know, hmm, uh, at one point there was this claim that Gaddafi would kill his people. Uh, in Benghazi, and so that the international community uh, have to intervene to stop Hadafi from genocide, etc. That's what they said at the time. But there was not no real, uh, I mean, evidence that Gaddafi would do that. But at least it was a convenient situation for the NATO uh, to, to intervene in Libya. And that's what they did. They intervened in Libya. They supported the rebels. They destroyed Libya, killed Gaddafi, and dropped a lot of weapons uh, in Libya. And when they did that, most of the weapons, uh, well, they were taken by rebels, but also terrorist groups. And those terrorist groups would uh, afterwards go to Mali to destabilize Mali, you see. And this provided also an opportunity for the French to come to Mali to say that, well, we want to liberate the northern part of Mali, uh, from terrorism, because if we do not do that, the terrorists will invade Mali, they will invade Bamako, and after Bamako, it will be Dakar and so on. And at that time, even there were anti imperialist people who said that France has to intervene, because if France doesn't intervene, well, the terrorists will invade Mali, and that will be catastrophic for, for, for West Africa. I think those claims were exaggerated, and there are Malian, I mean, intellectuals like uh, Aminata Raman Taure, Senegalese intellectual, Bubaka Bosjob, and others who say that, well, this was just an excuse used uh, well, by France to intervene in Mali. But when they did that, somehow they cut it, the Malian government at that time from the northern part of Mali. You know, and there were many speculations that it was for resources, etc. But whatever the case, the thing is that there was this form of, I mean, interventionism, which created a kind of a political crisis because the military, Malian military themselves, they have also their own part of, of, of the blame to some extent, the Malian elites too, etc. Uh, but the thing is, they were in an atmosphere where the country did not work. Uh, you, they had many terrorist attacks, etc., and there was no re- reaction. And sometimes in this context, you could have military coup because the military coup will happen in the context of, I mean, des- desperation, etc., and also strong desire of, of change. And there had been repeated uh, military coup, uh, I mean, since 2012, you know, and between 1999 and the early 20 until 2012, Mali was said to be a good democracy and so on. And yeah, but after the, uh, the destruction of Libya, Mali started to fail, I mean, to collapse. And there had been many military coups, and this did not solve the situation. What changed recently is that there had been a military coup, but those now in power, they want to liberate Mali from the French presence. That's why they hosted France. That's what they did. And they did that while working with a Russian paramilitary group, uh, the Wagner Group. And, oh, wait, uh, um, may, may I make one correction? Um, actually, the, the, the Wagner Group doesn't exist as a formal group. So it's a little, I'll send you it later. But yes, 
they were working with Russian militants <laughs> is the best way to describe it. Yeah, yeah. But they have been working with them. And well, because they wanted to have allies in a way to uh, put an end to the French occupation of the northern Mali. And for now, they, they succeeded and they are trying to have a new constitution for Mali, etc. So, so that, is a, that is the situation. I mean, Mali has been harmed a lot by, by, by imperialism, but also, well, other related factors, you know, climate change, also, uh, well, the class structure, all, 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 all those things. So it's not simple. It's not simple. I mean, for most African countries, uh, we need a kind of a Pan-Africanist integration to solve the major issues, I, I believe. Uh, uh, okay, um, I agree with you on uh, a lot of that, on almost all of it. Um, so in page 59, you mentioned, I'm pronouncing his name wrong, um, you mentioned Joseph Chunjiang's Paume's struggle against monetary repression. So I, I guess since the CFA, Frank, is a great example of monetary repression, what, like, how would this struggle look Again, like how would this look, I guess? Well, Joseph Chujang Puemi was a Cameroonian, I mean, uh, intellectual economist, and he was also employed by the IFEMI. He worked at the IMF, uh, the International Monetary mm. Fund, and uh, he wasn't happy with what the IMF did. The recommendations of the IMF, the IMF analysis regarding developing countries, he found all of that, I mean, contradictory, unscientific, and politically biased. That's why uh, he would himself also call the IMF the instant misery fund. Uh, he did not create that. I mean, <laughs> Argentinian, I mean, social movements create that, create that, uh, yeah, that slogan, instant misery fund, but Poemi would, would, would pick up on that. And yeah, so he tried in his book, published in France, you know, but uh, silence since then, he was, it was published in 1980, but it has been silenced since then. He, he said that, well, the CFA franc is a colonial currency, so you can do nothing with that currency. You have to get rid of it. You know, this book wasn't specially about the CFA franc, but the monetary landscape of, I mean, post-independence countries. And he was basically making the argument that uh, African countries, even if they were not in the CFA franc zone, they were not using all their monetary powers to create prosperity for the people. And when they tried to do that, they would face the international system and particularly the IMF, uh, the Instant Misery Fund. And, uh, well, tragically, Puemi would die very young. I mean, he died in 1985, 1984. He was 47 years, and he died under very strange circumstances. Yeah, I see. But he was one of the most brilliant uh, thinkers uh, we ever have uh, in Africa on topics linked to money, money and finance. Uh, uh, yeah, it's, it's funny because when I read this, I... Um... I'm in St. Petersburg in Russia right now. And uh, it's really nice here because for people who like history, we have like the, the library system is just way better. And I immediately got his book and I started reading a little bit of it. Um, the one question that I have for you is that you mentioned how a lot of the French institutions that oversee the CFA have some kind of secrecy where they withhold a lot of information from 
about what's going on. Can you talk a little bit about this information secrecy among the French institutions? Yeah, yeah. There's a total secrecy regarding the how the CFA fund works. You know, before we wrote our book, uh, Fanny and I. Well, we have many. Uh, I mean, we have many questions, many things that operate to us as kind of puzzles, and we said, where could we find information? And obviously, you will not find the information by asking questions to the officials, because generally they would say, no, we, we are not entitled to, to give such kind of uh, information, you, need, you see. So, those, so this system has been yeah, historically untransparent. And because, well, if people understand how it works, I mean, people will revolt and they have done their best. Even people within France will. <laughs> yeah, because... Uh, Yeah, I, I'm not sure that French people will revolt, but at least Africans, uh, Africans in the diaspora, they, they will revolt. And uh, actually, uh, most of the um, part of the contest against the CFA Frank comes from the diaspora. They have been very dynamic in, uh, I mean, in opposing the existence of, of, of the CFA Frank. Because, well, you know, it's like... Uh, I mean, this is not specific to the CFA franc because uh, those who dominate the world, I mean, the financiers, they don't want people to know how things work because uh, this is the basis of their own power. So uh, maintaining people in ignorance contributes to cementing their own social power, social and political power. So that is really important. And you would find that in the CFA franc. You know, for example, how this, uh, I mean, so-called uh, operation account system works, you know, uh, the relationship between the French Treasury and the IMF, you know, the relationship between the central banks and the French Treasury, all of those things are really opaque. No one would ever say, well, something about, yeah, those, 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 those relationships, you see, because this system has been designed like that. And the thing is, the central banks we have, They are called central banks, but they are not really central banks because now in the liberal, I mean, when I say now, I mean, in the liberal, neoliberal period, at least the central bankers, they say that, well, they are independent and they want to communicate to people because they want to say that, well, they have to, um, I mean, to be accountable, at least formally to the people, to public opinion, et cetera, to investors. They are doing that. But even those, I mean, standards uh, accepted by most central banks in the neoliberal period, uh, you could not find that in the CFA fund countries, you see. So, uh, I mean, uh, this system is really uh, backward. I mean, it's still 19th century colonialism. In a lot of ways, reading your book seemed, made it seem like a lot of that occurred. And so you mentioned that um, France does label itself as a guarantor. So what exactly is a guarantor? And like, what kind of data have you dug up in your book that shows you that France has not been historically living up to their role as guarantor? Yeah, that is the main argument, I mean, used by the French government to intervene into the economic and monetary affairs of its former colonies, this argument of the guarantee, that the French provides the guarantee to the CFA franc. You know, there are many people who believe that there is something called a guarantee. Because, you know, in many African countries, you see that the currencies are not stable, they tend to depreciate, etc. Sometimes you have high rates of inflation, etc. You know, and sometimes people will say, well, if you exceed the CFA franc, who will guarantee your currency? 
because the French, uh, well, propaganda worked to the extent that most people that think that there's something called a guarantee, but there is no such thing as a guarantee. Why? Okay, hold on. Um, I don't understand. What is the concept? Can you explain what the concept of the guarantee is? The guarantee, uh, well, means that if the central banks in the CFA franc zone, there are two central banks, if they lack foreign exchange, the French treasury, not the Bank of France, the French treasury, that means the government, the French treasury, the executive, will lend the desired amount in its currency, that means in French franc before and in euros since 1999. So it's a promise to grant loans, to extend loans. That is the guarantee. That means that uh, the Central Bank of West Africa wants to repay the debt, the foreign debt, or want to pay some imports. It doesn't have enough euros. So the, they could ask the uh, French Treasury to lend them the desired amount in you know. That's the meaning of the guarantee. And uh, the reasoning is that thanks to these loans, the Central Bank w- will be able, I mean, to make its external payments while, I mean, maintaining the fixed peg to the euro. That's the reasoning. Okay. And then in your book, you show that they don't really do that. No, because they have agreements. They have, I mean, rules saying that whenever they have, I don't want to be technical, but they have something called the coverage of the monetary base, central bank monetary base by foreign exchange. That means that, for example, uh, the central banks in safer zone they should always have a level of foreign exchange that represents 20% of their liabilities and the monetary base, 20%. So when you have 20%, and the equivalent of 20% of your monetary base in foreign exchange, that means that you have the foreign exchange. But if you want to, the guarantee to be activated, you have to be at a level of zero. But when you mm, are level of, you know, it's never at zero. <laughs> yeah. So <laughs> okay. you know, mechanisms are taken that you will never be at point zero. You see, I could give a more, I mean, mundane example. Let's say that, well, I am your banker, and I have your wage as deposit in my and uh, my in, in the bank, you know, and so I tell you, you have, uh, you are earning one hundred US dollars, and I tell you, I could give you an overdraft. If you want to spend much more than 100 US dollar, I can give you an overdraft. But the thing is, you have at least to block $50 in a, in a given account. I mean, a saving account, if, if you want, you know, you have to block that, the $50 in the, US, in the, in the savings account. And now, when you spend $80, I will tell you, ah, now you have to restrain your spending. You have to cut your spending because I can't allow you to go to uh, spend $100 because otherwise I would go give you an overdraft. Then I'd have to intervene. Yeah. And the system is made that I, would, I should not give you the overdraft despite my promise, you see. Mm. So the thing is that you will end up lending your money to the bank. Ah, yeah. that makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> So basically speaking, instead of the French providing loans to the African central banks, it's the contrary. It's African central banks providing loans to France for, for, I mean, between 1960 and now, except for the uh, 1980s, during most of the time, I mean, more than five decades, 
Africans provided loan to the French Treasury. Okay. I, I don't know how much time. To... Go ahead. So there is no such thing as a guarantee because, you know, what so-called guarantees your currency is what guarantees your sustainability as a nation. I mean, if you don't have the, the resources, real resources, if you don't have the know-how, if you could, your, your, your nation is not viable, economically speaking, your currency will not be viable, you know. So what guarantees your viability as a nation guarantees the viability of your currency. That's it. But except in that sense, there is no such thing as, a, uh, I mean, an imperialist country guaranteeing the currency of another country. It doesn't exist. But most people think there's something, something like that. Wow. Okay. Um, this is a perfect segue to the last um, 30 pages of your book that you devote to debunking the myths. So may I just read out the myths and can you give a quick summary? Yeah, please. The myth of the CFA as a factor of development. Why is this a myth? Well, uh, because when you look at the basic economic indicators for most countries using the CFA frame, it has been either economic decline or stagnation. And the best example is Cote d'Ivoire. They are poorer now than they were, uh, I mean, uh, four decades ago. Myth of integration. Well, uh, generally, one of the arguments uh, behind monetary unions is that, well, this will lower transaction costs and this will facilitate trade between countries, members of the same monetary union. But this did not happen in the CFA franc zone. And the best example is the CMAC in, uh, I mean, the monetary union in Central Africa using the CFA franc. They use the CFA franc since 1945. And the ratio of I mean, regional trade uh, out of the total trade is just 5%. That means they have been sharing the same currency since 1945, and the level of regional trade is just 5% of their whole external trade. The myth of attractiveness of the franc area. Yeah, they say that, well, if you have a low inflation and a fixed tech to the euro, uh, the investor will show up and this will create development. The investor will, will not show up. And the, the irony is that even the French themselves, they prefer to invest in other African countries compared to the CFA land because, yeah, yeah. That is a very interesting factor. Yeah, yeah. Because you would invest in countries that are growing, that have, I mean, interesting economic opportunities. So I guess the one question I'm going to ask is, what, in your opinion, is the solution to this problem? Or what is the beginning of a solution? Of course, it's a hard problem to solve because it affects all factors of life. In, in our book, uh, we, we saw uh, two ways of exiting the CFA, Frank. The easiest way and um, most natural way is that, well, any country could say, I want to get out of this system. And this is possible because, I mean, when you are a monetary union, uh, country, countries that are member of the monetary union, they are linked by a treaties. And any country could say that, well, I want to denounce that treaties because, that treaties because I don't want to be a member any longer. And this is possible. Legally, it's possible. So any country could say that, well, well, I'm going to issue my national currency and, yeah, get out of the CFA franc. And most countries who exited the CFA franc took that road. I mean, uh, you had countries like, I mean, when I say the CFA franc, you had, for example, Mauritania, you had Madagascar. 
But there was other countries in the, I mean, in the French monetary empire, like Morocco, like Tunisia, like Vietnam, all of them, they, I mean, they accept, they uh, exited the French monetary empires, uh, monetary uh, imperialism through, I mean, issuing their national currency. That is one road. The other road is to say that, well, we, we want to have some kind of monetary integration between African countries. Uh, so we are not a uh, fan of having national currencies, but we don't want to have, I mean, a common currency that would be a colonial currency. So we are going to get rid of France. That means that we are going to abolish the existing monetary agreements between France and the country's members of the monetary union. So that is a Pan-Africanist exit, not a nationalized exit like the former option, the former road, but a Pan-Africanist exit. But the Pan-Africanist exit is very um, uh, tough because uh, it requires consensus among all African leaders. And France knew very well that there will never be any <laughs> consensus because every time they could rely on two or three uh, loyal allies, for example, in West Africa, Cote d'Ivoire and my country, Senegal, have blocked any attempt of delinking from, I mean, French monetary imperialism. And um, right now, I realize that I just did not realize that you've also written a second book called The Fair Trade Scam. And um, hopefully I can get my hands on that book um, and so that we can invite you back on the show. Do you have any other comments and how do people reach you? What's your Twitter um, website, etc.? Yeah, yeah, I'm I'm on Twitter. Uh, I'm on Twitter. It's at uh, N S S Y W L A, and yeah, the book on fair trade was my first book. Yeah, and I wanted to show well the asymmetries, inequalities of the international trading system, and that the fair trade initiative, um, despite its the generosity of its intent, the intent of the fair trade movement, is not up to the challenge. I mean of changing, I mean, the international trading system. But yeah, I would be happy to talk about it. Uh, we, are, we are also currently organizing a conference in Dakar with some friends, some of them you know, like Fadel Kaboub, uh, Maha Ben Gada, my Tunisian colleague, and my German colleague, Kai Kodenbrock. We are organizing the second edition of the African Economic and Monetary Sovereignty Conference. It will happen in Dakar from October 24th to 28th at the Museum of Black Civilizations. And we are going to discuss uh, how to find, I mean, uh, I mean, right ways for Africa to conquer much more economic and monetary sovereignty. And we'll do that in an international spirit uh, with many comrades, colleagues coming across the world. That sounds very interesting. And we will look forward to that. Um, thank you so much. This is one of the most interesting. Um, I just sent you a really funny um, label from the East India Sugar, where it says not made by slaves. <laughs> <laughs> and it, it, this is what fair trade reminds me of this label, East India Sugar, not made by slaves. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. And in my, in my book, I, I gave an example like that, because you know, uh, the I mean, the forerunner of the fair trade movement. I mean, there were people involved in the business of slavery. You see. Oh, 
Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> Interesting. I did not connect it back then. But okay. well, yeah, yeah. I cannot wait to read that book and have you back again in a few months because your books are very information intensive. So it takes me a few months to go through all of it so I can maintain a good interview. But thanks again. Yeah, thank you very much to you and your colleagues. Have a good rest of the evening and hopefully oh, I know we'll speak soon and this is one of the um, very illuminating interviews I've ever had. So thank you so oh, much. Oh, so nice for you. Thank you very much. Ciao. Music for this show is done by Rectech. You can find him on SoundCloud and on Spotify. W R E C K T E C H. And thank you for listening to our show.